Film Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're sharing our conversation with Paul Schrader and Alex Ross Perry from this year's New York Film Festival. Both filmmakers are coming off a remarkable movie year. The former's First Reformed was his biggest artistic and commercial success in decades. And the latter's Her Smell was one of the daring highlights of this year's NYFF main slate. The two discussed the art and process of writing for the screen in a wide-ranging conversation moderated by NYFF director Kent Jones. Let's go now to their conversation. I want to begin by talking about the common conception of screenwriting. It used to be um, when people talked about screenwriting generally, and I'm not talking about screenwriters, but people when they were describing it from the outside in, they were generally talking about it as a matter of dialogue. About it's you know about and and the model in, in a lot of people's heads was Preston Sturges. I don't think that that's true anymore. Does that does that seem right, Paul? Well, I mean, I uh, I'd be interested to hear what. Alex has to say because I have my own unique uh, idea and approach to writing. But you know what you write is the fundamentals. You write theme, you write character, you write plot, and you write dialogue. All the rest of that is more or less the director's job. Now you can guide a director by the way you write you know, which you, if you say in the script, he picks out a hangnail. Well, that's kind of telling the director, you, t- it's need, you need a close-up here. Um, so you can guide the director into certain visual things, but no director um, likes to be told by a screenplay how to shoot a scene. Uh, the secret of directing is that you reimagine what the writer has done and you, you take something from the literary canon and transfer it to the visual canon. And that is a, a whole other process in a different half of the mind. So um, I, I'm, uh, I, uh, I don't have a lot of patience with writers who are trying to tell directors how to shoot a film. That's a very profound answer. <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting. When I write a movie, a script that I am going to direct, it's written in a very specific way. And then conversations on set with actors or in a meeting with an actor about a a project, they'll often say, your scripts are not written like other scripts. And since I read very few of them, I say, how so? And I guess what I've come to learn is that I'll often put things in a script that are the opposite of, uh, you know, close-up shot on the on the table but it's more like you know the character pauses and thinks about this other time and to me that's very obvious because it's just giving the actor one piece of information which is as far away as possible from telling a director even if it's yourself do this now and but, it, it but now do it. you put in uh, <coughs> camera instructions like uh, a long dolly a continuous never. shot never never I wouldn't know how, and even that when I read scripts. Well, obviously, with her smell, you're you know you're sh- you're shooting very very long takes, mm-hmm. and uh, I suspect while you were writing that you knew that it was going to be long takes. It's true. The of the five segments with the different styles, each segment just at the beginning said, Act One, 
Steadicam, Act Two, Dolly, Act Three, handheld. But beyond that, there's nothing. But that was just that's for the reader. I feel like half of it is that when writing, you have to think who is the reader, because scripts are very seldom read in relation to a movie that's seen. So for me, it's the reader is the actors, and the reader is people I have to spend two years explaining the movie to. So you're writing for that, but then when you read, you know, Hollywood scripts, scripts that are being made. A lot of times, just writers put in things for the director, even though they've never directed, they won't be on set. And I don't understand that. Well, and now filmmaking is being affected by television, right? Which is very much a writer's medium, writer's slash showrunner's medium, no? I mean, where the writers sometimes step in and, you know. Yeah, well, you see, like, I read a script recently that, you know, said, you know, jump cut, shots of these. Yeah. And it's like, that's not your job to determine, like, whether or not these are insert shots edited in that style. There's I, so many people. Yeah, I had three writing offers. <clears throat> the first one I attempted, the next two I turned down. And they were from directors who uh, didn't really like writers. And one first was Nick Roke and Antonioni <laughs> and Wong Kar Wai. And uh, I worked with Nick Roke for quite a while. And I, finally, I realized all Nick wanted was a kind of 50-page tone poem. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't really want highly structured drama. Yeah. This is in the 70s, Paul? Yeah. Yep. And, um, and then uh, I had a meeting with Antonio, and I got the same buzz off of him. And then when Wong Kar Wai asked me to do it, I said, I've had this meeting before. <laughs> I'm not the writer for you. Yeah. Um, but with Antonioni, was it a little bit more of a temptation? Because you, you know. No, because he... He wasn't that interested in plot. Yeah. And uh, what I like to think I'm good at is a, a story which has pacing and which engages you. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I could never write something as good as Red Desert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming at coming at it um, from another angle is, is a recent experience of yours, Alex, is on, on Christopher Robin, um, a different kind of movie. And so wondering what that was like. Right. So I, I wrote uh, the Disney movie Christopher Robin that came out in August. Um, I mean, for me, I wrote it like one of my scripts right. full of, you know, things where a, a, the paragraph of direction explains what someone's thinking about. But then when I saw the production draft, obviously, which had passed through many other hands, um, it was written more like a normal script. Yeah. But I, it's just it's just learning. And then, you know, even having someone involved with the movie say, oh, you have such a different writing style. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like to me that's a term that is so um, reserved for, you know, novelists or pages that you read instead of like, well, it's just, you know, the dialogue is, is there because that's what you're shooting. And I don't want to, I knew I was not going to direct this movie, so I was never going to say, you know, a swooping shot comes in over the <laughs> office and then it goes into the, the guy's desk. I would, it would never occur to me to do that, but that is the way a lot of, you know, industry writers prefer, and that's the way industry producers are now used to reading things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, I've written in different styles. Um, you know, there's a normal kind of expositional style. I've also written certain scripts uh, as chapters. Taxi Driver and First Reformed were both written as chapters without scene numbers, just, you know, a heading, Travis gets a job. Uh, uh, scene, a couple scenes, and another heading, you know, Drivers Buys a Gun, another scene. Late Sleeper was written that way, right? Yeah. Too, yeah. And, uh, and then I've also done some writing in the um, cartoon style, 
the Cowabunga style, <laughs> exclamations and capitals, and, you know, and you know, what you're trying to then convey to the reader is don't take this too seriously. And, um, and you know, you don't want to actually write on the page, don't take this too seriously. <laughs> but you can do it through choice of words and choice of punctuation. This is covered in the sequel to Transcendental Style, Cowabunga yeah. Style. <laughs> in film. Yeah, it's um, coming, coming next summer. Yeah, coming next summer from a university press. Um, Paul, what was, let's go back to your, your first scripts and your experience with seeing your uh, scripts directed by somebody else and transformed in the process. There was the Yakuza, which you wrote with your brother, um, Len, and then Taxi drivers, two very different kinds of experiences. Oh, an obsession at the same time, right? Yeah. Um, Bob Town came in and rewrote Yakuza. In yes. fact, uh, we were at an uh, <coughs> office at Warner Brothers, and, uh, and it was a two story bungalow. And I was on the top floor, and Bob was on the bottom floor, both writing the same script without each other's knowledge. Yeah. An old Hollywood trick, right? <laughs> and you had William Holden in mind for that role, no? Yeah, well, I had a lot of things in mind. Okay. I was very young. Um, <laughs> but well, what happened was that it was really, you know, an initially written as an action movie. And, um, and Bob Aldrich was going to do it, and then... Uh, Mitchum said, I, I hate Bob Aldrich, and so he went out, and uh, Sidney Pollack came in. And Sidney tried to rewrite it as a meaningful relationship movie. Right. And as a result, it fell between two stools. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, the big guy at the bar who sits down with one hand on one stool and the other hand on the other and falls to the floor. Um, and so it wasn't quite an action movie. It quite, wasn't quite a relationship movie. Uh, but... I, uh, I, I, I didn't feel I was being badly served. Yeah. I mean, because yeah, yeah, it was a serious movie, an obsession. Um, but I just didn't. I didn't feel like I was a writer. I mean, a real writer writes something that people read, mm -hmm. and that's why I started thinking about directing, so that I, I could be, you know, a writer director. Yeah, but with Taxi Driver. You know, I mean, it's I got different. lucky, very lucky with Taxi Driver. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. You know, Pretty I, good director. Yeah. I, well, it's very fortunate I didn't direct it because I oh. wouldn't have known how. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Marty was just at the, both Marty and uh, Bob were just at the right spot in their mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, and, that, and that's become, you know, the film that won't die. But um, that... <laughs> You know, that was written as personal therapy. Yakuza was written as commerce. But Taxi Driver, which was written before, was written as a way to exercise some dark things that were going on. And, uh, you know, when I say to people, uh, you know, uh, screenwriting works, has practical applications, it can help you in your life. It can help you deal with things you're dealing with. You know, I often get this kind of glass-eyed response because most young people think of screenwriting as a conduit to uh, fame and success and wealth and attention rather than uh, an introspection mm -hmm. about uh, 
how they can deal with their own personal problems. But uh, that's the door I walked in, and that's the door I still walk through. Hmm. Do you think that those early experiences where you were seeing those scripts be made by other filmmakers sort of made you sensitive towards later experiences where you were directing your own scripts, directing scripts that other people had written, and then continuing to write for other filmmakers? Because you sort of, at the beginning, you had those experiences which must have shaped the next 10 years. Yeah, but I mean, there's nothing as humbling as realizing you're the person who fucked up your script. <laughs> and that happens. And uh, your, your hubris immediately collapses when you say, I wish I had a better director. Uh, I'm, I missed it. I'm, I missed it. You know, it slipped through my fingers. Uh, and it happens to all of us. Uh, you, know, you were just talking about one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a certain amount of luck involved in you know, and and you, you you can feel it on the set. Like the, the last film I did, uh, everybody knew on the set that we were doing something good. You could just feel it. Uh, other sets, you, you know, nobody's quite sure. Um, this this uh, aspect of screenwriting as personal therapy does that ring true for you, Alex? <clears throat> well, certainly I, only because I don't I don't have any tr other therapy. Uh huh. Um, okay. So, but also just because that is, you know, for me, for at least the last five or six years, it's it's the thing that I do right. with all of my time. Yeah. So if it wasn't an outlet for whatever thoughts or feelings I'm processing during that year, then I don't know what else. I don't. I don't know how I could do it yeah. if it wasn't entirely a vessel. So how much calculation do you write before you know the ending? Do you write before you know the title? Um, it depends. No to the title. We talked about this before. You said something once that was the perfect distillation of the exact process I have, which is how long did it take to write? I thought about it for two years, and I wrote it in a couple of weeks. You said that, and that's exact. I mean, I've never done it in a couple of weeks. But for me, there is, at least in the last you know, several movies, a long sort of mulling for years. Titles there, characters, tone, setting, and then maybe a year, maybe two, maybe three years later, I finally think I'm ready to try this. Now, do you write just to write and then throw stuff out? Or what I do is I go through the oral tradition and through the outline process. So by the time I actually write page one, I have a full outline, I have a title, I have told it orally, I know how long, I know all the oral beats, you know, uh, what happens here, here, here. And then I can feel I can write. But I've known other writers who figure out what they're writing while they're writing. I'm much, much, much closer to the way you described yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, the figuring out is in the two years of thinking. And also for me, and this is maybe just representative of making independent movies, it's two years of me starting to describe it to people. It's not telling the story, but it's laying the groundwork with crew, producers, investors, actors, to say, so I'm, gonna, I'm writing this soon, and this is basically the movie. So I've walked through it a lot, but yeah, there's very little discovery on the day of the writing because I've tried to give it years of thinking, including, you know, so uh, her smell was the same. It was almost two years of saying, I know this character and I know the, the basic movie. And then once I finally had the movie, six months later, the script was 
completely finished and I started it with a sense of basically everything that was going to be in it. Is there a basic idea of kind of like almost committing it to memory, living with it to the point where it just becomes, you know, you're not even thinking about it when you tell it beforehand? I think so, yeah. And also yeah. because I try not to write any ideas down as they're forming. Right. Because I believe that if I don't remember them, they're probably not worth remembering. So if like during a movie that I'm watching, I think like, oh, that's a great idea for this thing I'm trying to form. Mm -hmm. I don't like, you know, go off to the bathroom and enter it into my phone or write it down. I think if, if I can yeah. remember this by the time I get home, then, then I'll maybe write it down. Otherwise, I'll just try to keep it in mind yeah. and then tell it to three people and see, and then it'll kind of get retained that way. Paul, don't you write out your structure? Like on a, I remember you used to do it on index I cards. I still do no, I think, no, right? never no? index cards. Mm -hmm. Index cards are too unwieldy. Okay. Uh, on legal pad. Okay. Yeah. And so that, and, and usually you have to get it all on one legal on pad. On one page, right. Yeah. So you can look at it, see your entire movie, you know, two columns. Uh, in an average film, maybe about 40, 50 things sort of happen. We're not talking about establishing shots. So you, you have them all listed with little descriptions of what they are and you know you use a tiny little fine point pen and, and so it's like Talmudic writing. <laughs> and, um, and, then, um, and then you use your outline to make your oral presentation to a friend, you know, let me buy you a drink, let me get your coffee, and you tell them the story. And then based on that telling, you re-outline again. Uh, and if you get to the point where you can tell somebody a story for 45 minutes and retain their attention and you can see it in their eyes, you got a movie. Um, and if you s start losing them, the exciting thing is just like stand-up. You start losing your listener, you start inventing stuff. And mm. out of those inventions, you know, um, you know, Faulkner, I mean Chandler, rather, once said, you know, you get in trouble, have somebody walk in the room with a gun. The audience, the reader, will be so glad he's there, they won't ask where he came from. Mm. And the same thing is true when you're telling a story. I'm telling you a story, I, I can see I'm losing you. So, uh, you know, then a red convertible pulls up and these two huge black guys in purple suits get out. Wow, I got your back. Now what am I going to do with these two guys? I don't know yet, <laughs> but, but at least I got you back. And so that's, uh, for me, how the screenwriting process evolves. It's not really about writing, it's about telling. Mm. Um, there's a statement that, you know, in the, his book on um, filmmaking, Alexander McKendrick said, uh, scripts aren't um, written, they're rewritten constantly. How does that statement um, feel to you guys? Well, that was, for me, um, a big lesson that I learned working for Disney uh -huh. that I have now, you know, starting with her smell, become very, very rigorously applying to my own writing, which was that I used to think writing was precious and that the script was sort of the end result. Right. And then doing a studio job for three years, you learn that oftentimes you sit down, take 20 pages, delete them, and have to start that entire sequence of the movie over, yeah. even though it has the same first beat and the same last beat. And learning that, I mean, even just this week, the working on something, I was just deleting whole chunk, five, six, seven page scenes just because I now feel like that is 
a very pleasant part of the process. Whereas I used to think that that was a waste of my time to have written it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And now I really think like, and again, I learned on Disney and I did this on her smell. Like the final draft of the script is generally should be done about 10 days before the shoot. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a great time to still be doing major revisions. Mm -hmm. And I did it on this movie and I now feel like that's, you know, there's no point in saying the script is finished ever because why, why bother? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I totally disagree. Um, <laughs> because you know, I, I can sort of see the whole thing, and I don't like to start writing until it feels right. And um, and I was just recently writing a script, and I got up to about page 30, 35. I said, "There's something missing," and rather than continue, I put the script away. Um, and you can just feel it if you feel it in your bones when you're when you're going off the rails and you're just spinning your wheels and you're writing stuff that really you know and at that point you just stop and um, or you re-outline but I I I, I couldn't bear to think of writing a ten-page scene that to you threw out it's very it's very unpleasant yeah. but then it's fun to get to do it again you but also like you know what i was doing the other day was i have a script that just there is essential essentially a consensus that there is a whole subplot that the movie doesn't benefit from at all hmm. and i was just essentially removing it mm-hmm. removing several supporting characters and just removing something so that the movie is much more about th- the main character which mm-hmm. is an obvious thing to say and this note resonated well. I was given this note a year ago, and then I didn't really know what to make of it until very recently. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like, I, I mean, it's not like, a, I, I take no joy in it, but I, I take joy in knowing that it's going to be okay. Yeah, well, I, I, I always start small. You know, if a first draft is 60 pages, that's good. You know, or the first time you tell it is 70, you know, half hour long, 20 minutes long. And then, and then you know, if it works at a half hour, it's going to work even better at an hour because you've got the bones and you just are fleshing it out. And uh, so I know there are people who write long and then have to cut. I find that a very counterproductive process because you're thinking reductively of reducing it rather than expanding it. I feel the same way about editing. At some point in the editing process, you say to the editor, let's do a cut where all of the scenes that really work are in. You know, and you, you look at it, and maybe it's, uh, you know, an hour, ten minutes long. And then you say, okay, now what do we have to add? And, and your mind then is, add, is adding, not subtracting. And when you get in that mental mindset of subtracting, oh, the script is 200 pages, I'm going to have to cut a lot of it out. I just find that not very creative. Have you ever had like a 200-page script for? No. Yeah, okay. that that would be hard to. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, I've I've had uh, when I first began to write, I was writing about 110, 115. Now I'm down to 90, 85 pages. Yeah. But that's not really what you're talking about, Alex. You're talking about you creating the stru- you're not talking about like writing, 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 and then oh my god, it's too long. I've got to take stuff out. If I understand you correctly. No, yeah, it's not that. It's more just like I would rather if I'm revising something, yeah. I would rather revise it from zero rather than just changing a line and thinking that I'm rewriting. Yeah. I right. would rather 
you know, print it out, delete everything, and then just be rewriting it from scratch rather than saying, I wrote, you know, from page 30 to page 90 is garbage. I don't know what this movie is. It's right. more like if I'm going to rewrite, I want to do it from zero yeah. rather than just saying, I think I can rewrite within the framework. You mm -hmm. know, I want to knock down the house and build another one. Yeah. And if you take something out, sometimes it opens up a space. Yeah. yeah. But also, like, again, it's just it for me now that I've done this a fair amount, you just learn to kind of, it depends on what the, the, the project is. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, you know, these writing programs, word programs, are, are not terribly helpful because you have a tendency not to rewrite stuff you don't have to. Whereas in the past, you did a first draft, you passed it to people, you thought about it, and then you started a second draft, and you had to rewrite every single word. Every establishing shot, every description of the car, um, and that was good. That was very invigorating. Now writers will just cut and paste whole sections, and will lose the discipline of having to actually type it out over again. Yeah, and my point is, I don't. I would rather type it out over again. Every time mm -hmm. I do, I think I don't need to write that sentence. That line of dialogue doesn't. That's not worth retyping. Mm -hmm. That that bit of description is way too long. I'm just going. To, I don't feel like typing eight lines of it. I want to just make it. And, I, and that to me is a joy now. Whereas I used to think that was terrible. I used to just think I want to edit and copy and paste. But now I really would rather rewrite from from a very basic level. But also, like I said, you know, it just depends on the um, the material. Like her smell was written to not really be possible for that to happen. Yeah. Where just because each scene is 25 minutes long and each one was about 30 in the writing, you couldn't really do too much of that. And I wanted to write a movie where that wasn't an option, mm -hmm. where you had to kind of commit. You know, and I was up until the week before the shoot rewriting lines of dialogue and threading new little elements around mm -hmm. based on the actors, but I wasn't changing anything because we'd already sort of, we had to just commit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there's not much improvisation in movies. That's a, that's a kind of myth. But what there is, is rehearsal. And most of what people think is improvisation, in fact, happens during rehearsal. Yeah. And uh, so that in your rehearsal period, if you rehearse from 9 to 3, that means you then go home and rewrite you know, from 5 to 8. Because every day of rehearsal, has just lit you up in terms of what changes can be made. And uh, I, I find a script gets rewritten in rehearsal because when you actually see people trying to use the words, uh, you suddenly realize there are better words or you realize that they have to keep trying <laughs> over and over again until they get it. Yeah, improvisation. I mean, you know, everybody thinks John Cassavetes, or they used to think that John Cassavetes' movies were completely improvised. Not really the case. Um, you know, um, improvisation. If you really want to see it in action, watch *The Wedding Party* by Brian De Palma. If that's your idea of a good time. Um, I wanted to just throw, uh, change the um, direction of the conversation a little bit and talk about Paul. You mentioned Robert Town before. Um, you know, a, a great writer, but someone who is known for the screenplay of Chinatown. So Chinatown is taught, you know, in, in writing courses, and, you know, yeah, as a model screen. Chinatown is his Citizen Kane, his curse. You know, it, w once you write a perfect movie, 
what yeah. do you do next? Yeah. And, uh, but the ending of Chinatown is not, uh, the movie Chinatown is not the ending of the script Chinatown. And that was, you know, the ending of the movie was conceived by Roman Polanski, um, you know, at the very last minute. And it's one of the, oh, wait, obviously. What was the original ending? It was a shootout in an oil field. Um, and, you know, uh, the J.J. Giddies kills the bad guy, the John Huston character, and walks away, <laughs> walks off into the sunset with... Uh, I mean, it really is, is well, not... It, it was still called Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. though the last line indicates the title. So Polanski yeah. grabbed the title for the last, for the end. But Polanski also turned it into a tragedy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, I suppose that, you know, the two Jakes is probably yeah, closer I, to... Yeah, you know. I mean... Um, uh, you know, it's a, it, like I just said, it is a curse when you write a film that is so totemic. Because yeah. uh, people think you can do it over and over again. And, you know, he can't. Who can't? Yeah. But you're also seeing, as, as, writer, as a writer, to see his work altered like that, he would also he would complain about it. But then, of course, that was the reason he was celebrated, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he... Uh, you're saying the opposite of your statement with Taxi Driver. You said, I got lucky. He's not saying, I got lucky with that one. Right. It was in the hands of great people. He complains about it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's not what I wrote. You know. Strange opinion to have. Well, I don't know. Ask, anyway. ask Stephen King. <laughs> He's been complaining about the Kubrick film his whole life. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. In his, he, he does this now. Of course, we know that. I, I just read his book, Dance Macabre, his book on horror, and he talks about the film and doesn't complain about it. And that book was written much closer to the release of the movie. I think he probably started complaining when he realized the movie was growing in reputation, because that book is, you know, from the '80s, and he just mentions it in passing as, you know, a, one of the many adaptations of his. He doesn't say anything critical, and he sort of says, you know, and, he, and it's very similar in some ways. He. And that's it. I thought that's so weird. I wonder when he started saying that. I think he's had a real, like Robert Town with Chinatown, he's had a real love-hate relationship with it as the years have gone by. He, you know, I remember a long time ago he said he started to feel a little bit kindlier towards it, but still ambivalent because it wasn't what he wrote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like you've said comments to that effect about something like Obsession or some of the, your other writing Well, credits. I mean, my problem with Obsession, other than the casting, um, was I had this idea, this remake of Vertigo, where you had a section in the past, a section in the present, and then a section in the future. And um, for budgetary reasons, they cut out the future section. And my conceit, the whole idea is, this is an obsessive love, so strong, that it transcends our time frame and it throws us into the future. And, uh, and once Brian dropped that idea, uh, uh, <laughs> my feeling for the experiment uh, diminished because that was probably my favorite thing about the experiment. It was, uh, it was set like 1960, 1972, and then the future was 1984. Um, no one seems to have been satisfied with the casting of the lead in that, of the lead actor in that movie, but yeah, yeah, including the Palma. Um, open it up to the audience for questions. And, but yeah, sir. 
Yeah, I kind of wanted to build upon the uh, Roman Polanski question. Yeah. Um, was there ever a time where a director made a change to your script that at the time you were unhappy about, but later said, oh, the director was right, um, that change made the film better? Well, I mean, I don't really think the writer should be on the set. Your job is over. Um, and I remember on Taxi Driver, Bob called me up. I was then in Los Angeles. And he had some dialogue. And he said, do you think Travis would say this? And I said, Bob, I'm you know, working on another film right now. You're in New York. You're driving the taxi. You got my boots and shirt. <laughs> if you think he would say it, he would, you know? Um, no, I wouldn't say that to every actor. But at a certain point, you have to hand that freedom over. And, um, and uh, a certain amount of, of mystery. Um, and... Uh, so, like, uh, one thing that surprised me about Taxi Driver was Scorsese at that time was very much into needle drops. Mean Streets is all needle drops. Uh, so I thought, oh, you know, we'll get another needle drop show. And then um, he had the idea of going, approaching Bernard Herman, who had just done Obsession. And, um, and Bernard Herman was vehemently opposed to needle drops, although they ended up with one Jackson Brown. The Jackson Brown song. Brown song. Yeah. And so um, that surprised me when Marty first told me that he was going to go with Bernie Herman. Uh, and of course, it was a genius insight because when Herman read the script, what he saw was a horror movie. Hmm. And so he wrote a horror score. And unfortunately, he didn't live, uh, he died the day after he finished the score. But when Marty was designing the movie, uh, the, the shots, I never knew this, he was actually listening to Astral Week by Van Morrison and the MTB sheets, and that was kind of like what he had in mind, but then he thought that's not going to work. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the question is about Paul's remark about um, uh, screenwriting as personal therapy and about um, striking a balance between um, the therapeutic aspect and then the, for lack of a better word, showmanship aspect, you know, how much it's for you, how much it's for... Well, more, more like, is your, is your strip service kind of, uh, you know, your audience or community or... Uh, mm -hmm. Does the script service the audience yeah. or the community? I mean, obviously, if you're writing an original piece of material, it all starts inside you. If you're adapting a book, you know, now you've got a template of someone else's vision that you have to deal with. If you're doing a historical event, you have to deal with that. Um, but you can find yourself in someone else's material. Like the Last Temptation of Christ, the Kazuzaki book. There were, I, I felt there were probably six different screenplays inside that book. And I had to find the one that I could write best. And so, even though it was Kazanzaki's, it was also me. Um, and, uh, and so, you, you go through that. And if you are working in a genre, if you are working for established a actress, you know, you're doing something for Melissa McCarthy, you know, you, you have to take that into account, and you have to take into account the projected audience. But you can still find a place for yourself. You know, uh, you, you do do yourself a great disservice when you say, 
I'm not involved. I'm, you know, I'm just a messenger. Yeah, I don't really know exactly how to answer that because, you know, like on a very crass level, like any piece of writing for me, like I'm writing it either because I want to make it or because I'm being paid for it and I want someone else to be happy with their investment in paying me to write it. So it's not just like a diary and like a personal thing because if I wanted to do that, I don't know why I would do it in the mode that is essentially my job. I would do that in some other form that's much more personal. So there is like a, you know, a script only serves a purpose. It, it has to either be a sample of writing that you're using for some greater cause in your life or, it be, you, or the purpose is to become your film or to become your job. So then, yeah, like finding something in there that is personal or like, you know, no matter what the job is or, in, you know, taking ownership of it is sort of the way to look at it. Like if you're working with a novel, like Paul's saying, or characters that you didn't create, somehow you have to own them and then chances are if you're writing it, you're only writing it because you have something personal to say about it. Um, and if it's good, then it's exactly a personal statement and also it's exactly what the people who are going to read it would have expected. Become your job. That's kind of a quote from Taxi Driver, right? <laughs> um, yeah, right over there. Yeah. This is a question about the, the, the distinction between the job of writing film and the job of directing. And at what point do you sort of let go of the writing part and let the directing part take over? Yeah, it, um, you should write as if you want to sell this to someone else. You shouldn't write, although I, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not writing first and foremost, and I'm writing the script, and I realize I'm going to have to direct this. No one else would. Um, but you try to make it accessible in that way, you know, and just put this uh, in your mind that a production executive will take home a dozen scripts over a weekend, and he or she will open them all, and they will finish two or three. You got to make sure yours is one of the two or three they finish. And that means in the first five to ten pages, you have to nail them because they're just looking for an excuse to set it aside. And so, yes, you do have to write it, uh, not for yourself, but for a reader. Uh, but then, every, then you get the script finance, now you're going to direct it. And what you have to, that's the moment where you change hats. And you say to yourself, how can I save this piece of crap? <laughs> you know, look at this lifeless inner script. What can I do? And that's your director's head off. So now you're thinking visually. How can I visualize this in a way that brings it to life and and you have to act as if you didn't write it? Yeah, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, an inverse of that, because I, I've heard this, this phrase many times, is that when I made uh, Her Smell, I went into it thinking and telling everyone um, I've never been more proud of a thing I've written. So, so I'm not, I, I don't feel like I have to salvage this piece of crap writing. It was more like I need to service the fact that I feel this way and I also I've been telling people I feel this way so I really should deliver on that or else I'm going to look like a fool for saying I think this is maybe my favorite script I've written and then doing a terrible job executing it because then people would say, what did you like about it so much? It doesn't seem that. <laughs> no, no, you never tell someone else uh, this piece of crap I've written, but you tell yourself. 
I couldn't you do that either. I, I, <laughs> you, know, you, you just do it to whack yourself over the head with a, with, with a two-by-four to make yourself rethink everything. What I was doing was I was saying it's not good enough yet. I was saying I, I'm very proud of it and I like it so much, but I'm still not finished yet, hence saying I'm doing a draft the weekend before we started shooting. It's not that uh, it's, I wasn't saying it's a piece of crap. I was just saying it's still not quite good enough. So keep working on it. Take it home over the weekend. Come in with a couple little line suggestions. Now, but how, how much uh, dialogue do you drop because you see the visual and you realize the dialogue is irrelevant? Uh, it depends. On this movie, very little. Now, in the case of uh, Taxi Driver, the original script, there was much more talk about the loneliness of the cab. But once... Marty saw the film, and he saw that big yellow monster moving through the night. All that dialogue about loneliness was redundant because you saw it visually. You, you saw the heart and soul of loneliness in this yellow coffin. And, um, and it's, if you can get that across visually, it's so much better than getting it across verbally. What about when an actor um, brings a life to you know what you're writing that you just it's, that just throws you? I, I mean, I think Paul, your experience with Richard Pryor on Blue Collar was a little bit like that, and with, maybe with George C. Scott on Hardcore. Well, the, the main one was with Nolte, because uh, on, on Affliction. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I had a lot of camera moves in mind. I, mean, I was in a, a kind of a Tarkovsky kind of phase, and I had all these camera moves. And we were planning them all out. Then we had first day rehearsals. And I saw Nick read the script. I called up the cinematographer that night and said, you know all those shots we were going to do? We're not going to do them. I just saw the most interesting thing about this movie, and it's Nick's face. Alex, you know, have you had an experience? Not really. That? I've never worked with those. You know, those are all like I think very <laughs> bullish, massive performers. Uh -huh. I never really had that. Yeah. But also because I've never had really the resources or the means, so I'm always kind of explaining to people. If I don't, if you don't have some sense on the size movies I've made of exactly what you're doing, yeah. then you're in huge, huge trouble. Yeah. Uh, if you're changed, you know. So I feel like I'm always kind of telling the performers. For example, in her smell, like yeah. so, this whole sequence is going to be done like this. Yeah. And if I change my mind, then we're all in a, a big amount of trouble because yeah, I've been telling that for a year. We're all agreeing that we're making the same movie. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's never a lot of that. But again, like that was the exercise of this movie and this script was me saying I just want it to be right. I just want to get it right yeah. as a script, and then I want to enter into this production with a very clear idea of what we're doing. Yeah. And I want to have written a script that essentially cannot be trimmed, truncated, or edited mm -hmm. because of the style of the scenes and where each one just goes on for 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, if minute 11 to minute 17 suffers, it has to be in the movie. So mm -hmm. it really shouldn't suffer. Mm -hmm. And that, may, you know, hopefully you get as close as possible to But now in the case of that. her smell, where you've got, uh, I assume you're doing dueling cameras. Two, two cameras at once, right? Sometimes. A lot less than I think you would assume. Uh, well, when you're in that opening, that whole backstage stuff, that looks like dueling cameras to me. There's, uh, in the, no, there's just one part of the opening that is two cameras. And it's in the room where there's like eight people towards the end of the sequence. Because when, when you're doing freeform dueling camera stuff, you know, people uh, 
did you let them go? Um, a little bit. Well, so all of that sequence at the beginning is steady cam. So you can really only do so much. Um, but the letting them go, that comes up in the rehearsal. We kind of, we had a rehearsal day for each one of the sequences in the movie. Yeah. And in that time, it was, you show me what you want to do. And then when we were shooting it, we kind of knew what the actor had come up with. And it was alive and physical and exciting in a way that I couldn't demand of them. One of the great innovations uh, in directing was the movement in uh, Denmark, or what was it called? Dogma. Dogma. And uh, the, what was the dinner table movie? Uh, the Celebration. Celebration. In that case, that was uh, probably two cameras. But the actors were not told what the shot would be. So that you would have a lead camera, and it would start to feel the scene. And then the backup camera would react and counter and go so it didn't get caught in the lead camera. And the actors didn't know when they would be on camera. They didn't know when they were off camera, when they were on camera. And uh, that was a, an exciting innovation in how to uh, uh, make actors alive. And I was, I was wondering whether you were doing Yeah, it. we stuck to that a little bit. In, in my sort of appeal to performers about the movie, I did say, you know, think of it like a piece of theater. If you're not the, the character giving the monologue, but you're on stage, you're still acting. The audience can choose to look at you even though they probably won't. And think of it that way, because the camera is likely to find you in any shot, in any take. But we'll have some idea of that, but it's going to change, and it's going to be spontaneous. But a lot of that stuff was you know, pretty much as planned, minus the very, very little amount of two camera days that we had. But you need to be working with a cameraman who's going to be so sensitive mm -hmm. that they become almost like a, another actor. In this case, yeah. Sean Price Williams. Yeah, but also he wasn't operating yeah. the steady cam. Yeah. So, he would, he, so when we were doing a second camera, it was right. him. A uh, yeah. brilliant example of this is Detroit. She was doing dueling cameras all the time in that motel. And, and sometimes the main camera would just start becoming aggressive. And the other camera would have to walk, walk off because the main, she had given the operator the freedom to go with the emotion of the scene. Um, I don't think I could do that, but. Yeah, I know you, you've talked a lot about that sequence in the middle of that movie, which I love and is the kind of thing I sort of was trying to hit on this movie, just you know, an endless endurance sequence where the performance is just, you, you don't know, it's just going to bend until suddenly the scene breaks in half. Yeah. That to me is a very exciting sequence in that film. Mm. The process of finding the process. That's an interesting one when you were you know, early in the careers. I figured out a way to write uh, from the beginning, and I'm still writing the same way. Uh, now, this is a, 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 an approach which is based essentially on spec writing. Uh, if you're doing adaptations or jobs for hire, the approach really doesn't work. But if you can isolate a problem in your life, and then a, a metaphor for that problem, and then start writing a storyline through the metaphor, and see what happens to the problem as the storyline progresses. Metaphor, problem loneliness, metaphor, taxi cab, story, you know, kid, uh, uh, you know, looking for connection in the city and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I still write that way. 
uh, I wrote first reform that way. <laughs> now, that's very unique. And it's something that I devised. I don't know how it, if it works for other people. I've taught screenwriting in a number of places, and this is the method I teach. But I realize that for most of the people, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, when I teach screenwriting, we don't start writing until maybe five weeks into the course. The first four weeks are, are group therapy. And uh, so that is a unique approach. Um, and I, I began then as a night writer. And I, I, I write from 10 to 5 at night. And I had a friend who was a day writer who wrote, he got up at 6, smoked a joint, and wrote till, till noon. And I started at 10 and, to, and drank my way to 5. Um, and, you know, um, we were both good writers. You know, so different horses for courses. Yeah, and first of all, thank you for somehow situating me not at the beginning of my career, saying that when you were, when you were starting off, implying that that's years behind me. Thank you. Um, it's not, but I appreciate the notion that it could be. Um, it's, just like, it's just trial and error. Like we're saying, this idea that I have of, that Paul shares of, I'm not going to start writing until I know where it's going. I only learned that by trying to write scripts that I didn't know where they were going and then not being able to finish them. So then I eventually said, I've done this three times now. I now have 40 pages of several different scripts, and I still, to this day, years later, don't know where those movies would go. Mm -hmm. So I probably shouldn't have started writing them. So it was just sort of trying that, not succeeding at it, and then once or twice saying I want to do it this way, and then not having time or not having whatever to write, and then a year later thinking, oh, I can just write this movie in six or eight weeks. That must be something that works better. Um, and, you know, it, it really is just like, but like you're saying, it doesn't work when you're doing this kind of as a job because you have to turn stuff into people sort of on a, on a regular basis. So it, it depends just how much time you have. But, like, I, I always tell people, like, the best thing to do is just be free from any sense that there's, like, a thing you should be doing. Like, I used to, like, what, the way I write now is essentially, like, 10, 30 in the morning, I, like, have a cup of tea and then just write until 6 p.m. and then I cook dinner, which is, like, having a job. And I wouldn't tell people, this is how you have to work. Trust me. Work like it's your desk job. Because I used to not be that way, but, you know, I wouldn't, if someone said I can only work at night, it would be, okay, great. That sounds fine. I just, you have to be free from work. this. to work. Yeah, you have to be free from the sense that there's like something you should be doing, that oh, I can only work in public because I like the noise, or I, I, I can't work in my house, it's too quiet. Like just, you should be free from the idea that there's things that prevent you from being productive. Mm. Whatever they are, they're fine. Like, except that I can't work on planes or hotels, but, <laughs> and, I, and I'll maintain that for the rest of my life. But um, other than that, I feel like, you know, you just don't tell yourself that there's things in the way of doing work. I'll, I'll, I'm going to... Uh, I'll give you an offer to write a script on the condition that it can only be written while you're on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> and it's $100,000 for a first draft. This is an offer right now? <laughs> oh, boy. I think, I think you would figure out how to write that on a plane. <laughs> the, question, the question then is, is, is business class or, or, or coach? Because yeah. Yeah. And, and am I paying for all these plane tickets? Yeah. Because that's going to eat up the 100000 yeah. very quickly. And you're in the center seat, right? Yeah. Um, just, yep, yeah, right there. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. How does the script 
alter what when what you know once it's you know in production and it's going you know how does and, and you're referring to the example that Paul gave of uh, affliction. Yeah. Well, presumably, or hopefully, it gets better. You know, so it depends what your circumstances are. There are situations where the script gets worse. Uh, I had that with hardcore. You know, changes were being made by the executives, and uh, and I was, you know, bending to them. And I, I think the thing was worse. But um, so does it really ever change? You like metaphysically the core of it? If you sense that, it's probably too late. You know, I mean. Uh, I don't wish this on anybody, but it's very possible to be on a movie set and say, I'm making the wrong movie. And there's nothing you can do about it, but keep making it and hope you're wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, changes aren't necessarily as damaging as you imagine. The original draft of Taxi Driver, Travis only killed black people because he was a racist. And when you're down on the totem pole, you're always looking for somebody lower than you to take it out on. And um, the executive of Columbia said, you know, if we shoot it this way, we're going to have violence in the theater. It's just too much. And so, uh, character that Harvey Keitel played, who originally was black, uh, was made into a white character. And, um, and Marty and I both agreed with the, I mean, we didn't like hearing it, but once we heard that, we, we realized that the executive was right, you know, that it would be irresponsible to do this. You could do it in a book, but to do it on a screen in a crowded auditorium, no. And, uh, and uh, you know, when we found a way to make it work, uh, even though it wasn't as ideologically pure or racist pure as the original concept. Yeah, time for a couple more, yeah. A question about research um, and how that works in, in in relation to the process. Uh, how, much, how much clubbing did you have to do? Clubbing? Well, I grew <laughs> up in the 90s listening to all this music and her smell, so I did my research then. Um, but, you know, like, that, that's the thing. Like, so in the uh, case... Did, did you have a prototype artist? Um, many. That maybe there's someone you wouldn't talk to? Uh, no, no. I would never... I wouldn't have wanted to do that because then you're telling someone's story. But once the script was written, I did talk to a number of women in rock rock journalists, specifically female rock journalists, shared the script with them, sh showed it to women who tour in bands and had conversations like that, which I found very enlightening. Um, some of them said, I can't believe that someone who's never been in this world <laughs> has written this, and some of them said, there's something very fundamental that you're misunderstanding here, and that was fascinating. So I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit on this film, studying you know women in, in rock music from the 90s to the present. Which, you know, again, I lived through it, so a lot of this was my first-hand fandom of these bands, but then reading books, reading uh, oral histories, um, really just, like, reading about music was something I'd never done. 
And I thought that that was kind of interesting. If you're doing a film about a sort of specific culture, um, specifically a culture that is not necessarily best experienced as a book, reading book after book about music, I thought was an interesting way to think about music, not as a thing you hear, but think about music as a narrative. Think about bands as characters and people and not think about music as just something you listen to, but think about it as something that creates drama among perfectly ordinary human beings. That that was kind of my research on this movie, and it was very fun. Yeah, well, I, I'm old enough to remember when you actually had to do research. If you're writing a movie set in New Orleans, you'd have to actually go to New Orleans. Now, you, you just go to Google, and you type in New Orleans Diner 1975 images. <laughs> Boom. And a whole bunch of images of it. New, New Orleans Diners in 1975 come up. And then you pick the one you want to use, and then write, type out the description in the script. Uh, you don't even have to go anywhere. You can do all your research in your chair. Um, and uh, because early on in my career, I wrote a script about Montreal, and I went to Montreal for two weeks, you know, and I wrote a script about Hank Williams and traveled through the South. I, I don't even know if you have to do all that stuff anymore. Well, you do. <laughs> I think most people would just say, you don't, so we won't pay for you to do it. Right. Yeah. But there are a couple of things that I, you know, I, I, I'm working on that I would like to be working on that I, I have a dream of that being part of the process, uh, finally. Yeah. Just because it's, it's, you know, at the level that, you know, you're kind of starting at, it's not, I mean, did you uh, embed yourself in a factory for, for Blue Collar? No, but I did in a rock band for Light of Day. I traveled around with this, with Eva Dilkew and her band uh, through the Akron, Cleveland, all, you know, that whole circuit. And... Um, uh, and that's where the title of that script, the script was originally called Born in the USA, and then Bruce used that title. Um, but Eva Dilkew, which is Euclid Avenue spelled backwards, uh, Eva Dilkew just said to me one night, you know, in the middle of one of all these all-nighter things, and she says, well, I just can't help it. I was born in the USA. And boom. So, uh, you know, sometimes research pays off. Yeah, that sounds like Bruce. A sounds like a fun, a fun way to to, to write that. <laughs> but we there did. are, I mean, there are movies that are made now that that feel like they're Wikipedia movies, you know, um, historical movies. I won't, I don't want to name any. But, like true know. story movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly, and you know, like for my for writing her smell, like being fictional, you're free from that anyway. Right. Which is, you know, something you know you've certainly experienced. Like you, you want to tell a story, but not a specific story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but when, when you meet the real people, they always do something a little different than you think they're going to do. You know, um, it's a, a mannerism, a, a tick, uh, a way of speaking something. Uh, you know, that's where you know, journal, uh, a good background in journalism really helps you as a screenwriter because you have learned how to read people. And... You know, so that if you're gay to lease or Tom Wolf, you'd know how to interview somebody and you know how to get what they have. And that's a very invaluable tool. Does a good background in film criticism make you as a screenwriter? No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that you said at one point that, that you thought, you know, you want Dustin Hoffman for a part. Somebody reads one of your old reviews. It says, this is Dustin Hoffman's best role since so-and-so. And he said, oh, I guess he didn't like my other movies. Well, I'm not going to act for that guy. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, you, you can't be a reviewer and a filmmaker at the same time. It's just, 
too many um, fragile egos involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yet, Kent, uh, yeah. you, have, you have done this. Uh, yes, I've done it. Paul's done it. And, you know, I mean, Olivier Assias has done it. Um, Andre Tachine, um In France, it's a little bit... Just be careful who you criticize in, in the next year or two when you get... I haven't written a word of criticism in a couple well, of years. I, I, but, I, I was know. just doing a talk with Spike at the DGA, yeah. and I was ragging on Denzel Washington uh, for a transporter movie or whatever it was called. <laughs> and... Um, and I said, you know, he's such a great star. Only he could have made that interesting. And Spike said to me, don't rag on the D. I need to work with him. <laughs> <laughs> Do one more. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Developing a character that you have absolutely nothing in common with. I don't think there is such a thing. Um, you know, we're all human. And I may think I have nothing in common with you. But I sit, talk to you. We go to a museum. We have dinner. I'll find common ground. You may not even know what it is. You may not even recognize it. I may have reached into me and, and, and transplanted it into you and then said it was yours. But I'll find it. There is no such thing as somebody you have nothing in common with. Mm -hmm. I yeah. probably can't answer that any better than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, you guys, we have to wrap up, but thank you. This was great. Thank, thank you. you, everybody. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.